may be seated. My name is David Swanson. I'm the pastor, New Community Covenant Church in Bronzeville. That's uh, the church plant that you all sent out a couple years ago. All right, I'm going to try that again. Because Thaddeus, that was, right? I'm the pastor of New Community Covenant Church down in Bronzeville, the church plant that you all sent out a couple years ago. Better. We thank God for God's faithfulness to us. Uh, your, one of your pastors, Pastor Michael, is right now in Bronzeville. He's preaching there. We decided to do a little swap thing so that he could be there uh, with our folks and I could have the opportunity to be with you. As an aside, I was joking with Pastor Angela earlier about the video of Pastor Peter that we were supposed to see. When Pastor Peter makes videos uh, and they're supposed to be announcements, they're actually sermons. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody? And so I was like, I'm, just, I'm not going to have to preach today. So I was already like in my head, I, I'm just going to come up and say, go in peace, you know. Uh, so, but I'm actually going to preach today. And uh, you can co- edit that part out of the podcast, all right? Don't tell, don't t- don't tell your pastor I said that. Uh, I don't know how many of you know this, but uh, your church, uh, our church, belongs to a wider family of churches called the Evangelical Covenant Church. It spans the country. It spans the world. We belong to a larger church family. And depending on which one of those churches you visited on any given Sunday, you may recognize it. It might seem a little bit familiar to you based on how we worship here. Or it might seem very different to you. It might feel like an immigrant church. It might feel like a second generation church. It might feel like a a high church, a liturgical church. They could feel and look a lot of different ways, but there are certain things that hold us together. And one of those is our affirmation in the centrality of the Word of God. Say centrality of the Word of God. What does that mean? That's what I want to spend some time on this morning. The the way that our our denomination kind of breaks this down a little bit, it's a little bit technical, theological sounding, but hang with me. This is how we put it. We say the Holy Scripture... The Old and New Testament is the Word of God and the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. The Holy Scripture, the Old and the New Testament, is the Word of God and the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. I want you to notice two things about that phrase before we take it off the screen. Start with the second part of that sentence. A perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. Whatever it is that we think about the Word of God, clearly it's important. It matters. It affects how we live. I'm going to come to that in a minute. But the first part, we believe that the Holy Scripture is the Word of God. The Word of God. What does that mean? The Word of God. Now, if you've been around the church for a while, if you grew up in the church, if you've been a Christian for a little bit, you're familiar with that maybe. We talk about the Word of God. But what do we mean when we say That the Bible, that the Scriptures are the Word of God. Well, we need to look at that word God. We need to start with God. Because any time that you and I talk about God, we are talking about someone who is completely other than us. Would you agree? Somebody who's different than us, distinct from us. God is by God's very nature other than us. So we start there. 
When we talk about the Word of God, we're talking about God, a God who is other, transcendent, different, distinct from us. So the question becomes, how do we know this God? We talk about God a lot. We worship God. How do we know a God who is completely other than us, distinct from us? Well, the Scriptures tell us that one way that we know God is that we just look around. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without an excuse. Paul says one of the ways that we know God is that we look around. We pay attention to the things around us. Maybe for you that's in a beautiful sunset or walking by Lake Michigan. I think for most of us we have these moments. Maybe they don't happen all that often, but there are these moments where we have the sense of the presence of God or what God must be like. On Friday evening, your pastor, Pastor Michael, came over and hung out with me on my back porch. My son was asleep. His son was asleep. We had no distractions. That doesn't happen a lot, just so you know. When you have little people living in your house, there's a lot of distractions. We didn't have any distractions. We sat on the back porch. The weather was nice, pleasant, not humid, which is a good thing, right? Okay, I'm the only one who's been suffering under this heat, apparently. You all like it. I don't like it. It was pleasant outside. So about, about 8.30, he came over. We were sitting on the back porch. We were just having a great conversation. You know those conversations with close friends who know you well, where you just kind of lose track of time? Pleasant, cool breeze, watching the clouds kind of fly by behind my condo. And it was one of those moments where it's like, oh, this is just right. This is good. I think I might even be sensing something about what God is like in this goodness of this moment. So one of the ways that we know this other God, this transcendent God, is that we open up our eyes. We pay attention to what's going on around us. But, but because you and I are not God... And because our perception of reality and truth are massively clouded by our own humanity, our own sinfulness even. There's only so much that you and I can know about God when we start with us and look out. There is plenty that we cannot know about God when we rely on our own understanding. And so Paul goes on in that same chapter in Romans 1, and he says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, you and I might have a sense about who God is from looking around us, but left to ourselves, we can say very little about this God, what this God is like. And we certainly cannot hope to know this God intimately, relationally. In order for us To know God, God has to reveal God's self to us. All right, nod your head if you're still with me. 
In order for us to know something about God, God must actually reveal, show God's self to us. Revelation, according to one theologian, is God's self-disclosure through his acts and words in the history of his people. God shows himself, God reveals himself, who God is through the things God says and the things God does. Now we might object at this point. We are rational people. You are smart people. How can we say confidently that we can know something from a God who shows something to us? The type of knowing that we are used to, the type of knowing that I'm comfortable with, that I like, is a kind of knowing that begins with me. Where I come to something and I ask the questions of this thing that I want to know about. And I study it and I learn about it. And there's nothing wrong with this kind of knowing. It's important, this sort of knowing that begins with the questions that we ask. But I want to ask you this morning to at least make room for another kind of knowing. There is the knowing that starts with us and the questions that we ask, but then there is another kind of knowing. Let's call it a relational knowledge. A favorite author and theologian of mine, a British man by the name of Leslie Newbegin, he writes this about relational knowledge. He says, In this kind of knowing, we are not in full control. We may ask questions, but we must also answer the questions put by the other. We can only come to know others in the measure in which they are willing to share. The resulting knowledge is not simply our own achievement. It is also the gift of others. Now that's a long way of saying something that you and I experience on a regular basis. That there is a kind of knowing that comes in relationship as we disclose our lives to each other. Whether or not we're aware of it, every single time we're interacting with somebody else, we're deciding, how much of me do you get to know? How much of my life am I going to share with you? Most of us don't go around just sharing all of our business with everybody, right? That's, that creates an awkward situation. We hold our cards closely and you gain trust and eventually I'll let you know a little bit more about myself. And here's the thing, even in a relationship that's existed for years and years and years, when somebody thinks they really know you, only you know if you are really known. You know the things that you have not told. You know the things of your life that you have not shared. You know the parts of your history that you have kept hidden. This is a relational knowledge. It's a gift. It's the kind of knowing that comes when I say, I trust you enough to open myself to you.
Relationships can't function with that first kind of knowledge when I stand over something and say, I'm in charge, I'm going to ask the questions, I'm going to figure this out. It's a great way to kill a relationship. But in this relational knowledge where we open ourselves up to each other, we find that we can know and be known. And there's a very real sense that when we're talking about God's revelation, this is what we are talking about. We're not talking about us standing over God as objective observers, thinking that we can figure out this thing called God all on our own. We are instead coming to one who, because of his transcendent nature, has opened himself up to us, showing himself to us, revealing himself to us. My sense is that whether or not you are a Christian this morning, so far what I have said holds together. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, I think that you can still come at least this far with me this morning. You can at least wonder at the possibility of a God, and if there is such a thing as God, then surely this God must be categorically different than us. Even more, most of us would agree that for God to be God, God must be perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly loving, something that we are not. So again, whether or not you are a Christian this morning, I think that you can at least come this far with me and say, if there is a God, this God would have to show God's self to us, would have to reveal God's self to us. My knowledge of this God would have to be a relational knowledge. Somebody say amen if you're still with me. Now let me take one more step. And this is a step, those of you who are Christians, you're like, yeah, no problem, I'm with you, but I want you to still pay attention this morning. And those of you who are not Christians, maybe this seems like a bridge too far, but will you come with me still? Will you, will you consider still what we believe to be true about the Word of God. When we talk about God's revelation in these pages, we're not talking about an esoteric fact. This isn't somehow a magical book. When we talk about God's revelation, we are talking about the presence of God. And, and, and this works in a couple of different ways. In Second Peter chapter 1, the apostle writes, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture comes about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, those who wrote down these words were empowered by God to do so. God's revelation plays out as those who write down the Scriptures are prompted to do so by God. Again, most of us who are Christian, I know, if you're not a Christian this morning, you're like, what? Wacky! I get it. But here's the thing. Most of us who are Christians this morning, we're just like, yeah, okay, that's good to go. That's fine. We don't even really... But, but, but let's take one more step. Yes, God inspires those, inspired those who wrote down the Scriptures. This is one of the ways that Revelation plays out. But watch this language in Hebrew chapter 4. For the Word of God, that is the Scripture, the Bible, for the Word of God is alive and active, 
sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. God revealed his word to the authors of the Bible. God is revealing his word to you as you open the pages of the Bible. Did you get that? God revealed, past tense, his word to the authors of the scriptures. We can trust this, but God is still revealing his word in the pages of the scriptures. That is, you and I don't come to this book and just on our own strength, under our own power, under our own wisdom. The Holy Spirit of the living God is what allows this book, these words, to be active in our lives. The Holy Spirit is what allows this word to be word to us. Are you aware of this when you come to the Bible? When you sit down with the Bible, when you open up the Bible, are we aware when we come on a Sunday morning and gather together to hear the Scriptures, to be taught from the Scriptures, are we aware that in this moment the Holy Spirit of God is revealing God's Word to us to make this Word active and alive for us? Or do we have somehow studied this book as an artifact? Do we treat it as something we should do, we ought to do. Do you know that God is still speaking through His Word? Do you know that God wants to speak to you through His Scriptures? For us to say that the Bible is central, we must acknowledge the role of the Holy Spirit in these pages. The Holy Spirit who revealed God's Word to those who first wrote it. The role of the Holy Spirit who now opens up our hearts to receive God's words each time we come to the Scriptures. And so when we say that the Holy Scripture, the Old and the New Testament, is the Word of God, we are saying... That this book is God's revelation to us. It is His Word. The Word of God. And then when we go on to say that this same Word is the only rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct, here we are saying that this Word must be central in our lives. The centrality of the Word of God. It must impact every area of our lives. Does it? Does it impact every area of our lives? Because this book is God's revelation, we treat it as His Word. And because the Holy Spirit continues revealing God's Word, we must make it central to our lives. How? What does it look like for this book, for the Scriptures, for the Bible? It's it's on your iPhone, some of you, you know, so. What does it look like for that to become central in your lives? What does it look like for you to interact with, 
with the pages between these covers as if, in fact, it is God's revealed word for you, for us. What does that look like? Some of us this morning, we, we, we know the importance of the Bible. We've known it for a while. Some of us feel guilty about that. I should be reading it. I should be memorizing it. Carry this guilt around with us. See, some of us, we think this book is somehow too holy for us. Well, that's God's Word, and I know I'm not holy enough. So I respect it, I revere it, but I leave it on the shelf. It's, it's, it's too much for me. Others of us, we know the importance of the Word, and so what do we do? We seek to master it. We seek to know it all. We seek to somehow put together a system or a theology that will allow us to claim, I get it. I totally understand that. Some of you have had conversations with those folks, right? Where you just wanted to talk about the Bible, you know, something that God's doing in your life and the person like has this 10-point theological thing to do to you. Another way that we can interact with the Bible is to take the very disciplined approach. I know it's important. I know it's the Word of God. So I'm going to read it. It's kind of like how I think about broccoli or the treadmill. It's like, I know it's a good idea. I know it's good for me. I don't have to like it. There's no joy in it. What's the alternative? If the Holy Spirit is indeed revealing God's Word to us through the Scripture, in the Bible, then I think we need to hear an invitation this morning. The very presence of God is what opens these words up to us, is what reveals who God is and what God is about in our lives to us. So I think we can hear an invitation this morning. An invitation not to leave the Bible on the shelf, not to try to master it, not to just be disciplined in reading it. An invitation. Let me give you two metaphors. An invitation to a story and an invitation to a meal. An invitation to a story and an invitation to a meal. Let's talk about a story. I would say to you this morning that the Bible, front to back, is one story. Is that how we think about the Bible? The Bible front to back is one story. Now, granted, it's made up of all types of different genres, right? Some of you literature majors, you can help me out on this one, right? But there's poetry. There's apocalyptic literature. There's letters. There's history. Different type of genres, but front to back, the Bible is one story. We see Jesus reflecting this. After he's resurrected, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. He walks up next to two of his disciples. They don't recognize him. And they're talking. They're they're, they're distraught because their Savior has just been crucified. Luke chapter 24. Jesus, Jesus begins to talk with them. And he says, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures. In all the scriptures concerning himself. All the scriptures that they had were the Old Testament scriptures. 
So Jesus starts with the Old Testament. He works his way through, and he shows them that this is his story. That this is the story of God's salvation for the world through his Son, front to back. The Bible is a story. The, 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 the author of the Gospel of John, he says this about his, le- about his book. In chapter 20, he says, But these are written that you, m- you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. For us to say that the Bible is central is to say that the Bible is a story. It's a story front to back. It's the story of Jesus and our salvation, the salvation of the world. What does it mean if the Bible is a story? Let me give you two very quick implications of this. Stories need to be heard. It's great if you've got a bunch of books on your shelves, right? A bunch of works of fiction. But if you've not read them, what's the point? There's a real sense where a story can't be a story if you haven't listened to it. Or or a shelf full of, of DVDs. Is the story a story if you've not entered into it? So for some of us this morning, the invitation is to shh, be quiet, and listen. Is there space in your life for the Bible to be God's story? Is there enough room, are there enough margins in your life for you to treat the Scriptures as God's story that you can listen to regularly? The Bible asks us to be quiet, to listen. And you know how to do this, by the way. There's nothing like super spiritual or religious about this. Because you all know how to listen to a good story when you're convinced it's a good story. Like, I don't get to go to the movie theater very much anymore. Like, I'm not going to see Batman in the movie theater. I just know. I'm not even going to, like, when it comes out in, like, nine months or whatever, then I'll see it on a DVD. That's what happens, again, when you have little people in your house. But man, when there's, a, when there's a movie that's coming out and you've been waiting for it, you know the release date, you know when that Netflix DVD is going to show up in your mailbox. Man, you clear the calendar. You make space, you make room, you got your popcorn all popped and ready to go, you got the lights dimmed, you got the ringer turned off. If you're watching it with anybody, you make sure ahead of time to say, this is, this is not one of those movies where you're going to be talking dirt. Don't be asking questions about this movie. So we know how to listen to a good story. We know how to do it. Some of y'all, you loved Harry Potter. I look, I literally, I literally remember when Harry, the Harry Potter books, they got released in England before they got released in the United States. I have friends who were ordering from Amazon.com slash UK to get the book sent to them. And forget it, they weren't going to sleep until they had finished reading this thing. So we know how to listen to good stories. Is there room, is there space in your life to hear the story of God? Is there margin? Is there ritual? Is there rhythm? 
in your life where you can come to and hear the story of God. Another implication, if the Bible is a story, the story of Jesus and our salvation, is that we have to care what the author of this story intended for us to see, to hear, to understand. we got to care about what the author cared about. One of my, another one of my favorite authors and, and theologians, a man by the name of Eugene Peterson, he points out that too often you and I, we come to the Bible attempting to address our own needs our own wants, our own feelings. Now, let's be clear. The Holy Spirit does address our needs, our wants, and our feelings as we come to the Scriptures, just not on our timeline, not how we would always choose Him to do so. See, we need to remember and know that we don't have any claim on this book. This is, this is not your story. This is God's story. And your story and my story, it is caught up into God's story. But this is, first of all, God's story. And so we don't come to this book like a problem-solving book, right? Like, I want to be married, and I'm not married yet. Where is the verse about that? <laughs> How far can I go with my girlfriend? When is it actually considered sex? Is that in here somewhere? This is not to say that the Bible does not address these things, but we start with God's story. We come listening. God, what is your intent? What is your purpose? What is your plot? What is your narrative? What are your values? What is your perspective? Where are you, God, taking the world in Jesus? We do not come to the Bible to clarify or confirm our agenda. We come to the Bible to discover God's agenda. Think about it this way. If the Bible only affirms your own perspective and your own opinions, something's wrong. If you're a Republican and you read the Bible and you're like, well, clearly Jesus is a Republican, something's wrong. If you're a Democrat and you read the Bible and you're like, well, clearly Jesus is a Democrat, then something's wrong. We come to discover God's agenda, God's purposes, God's perspectives. We need to be troubled by this story at times. We need to be thrown off kilter by this story at times. Because like we said before, God is other. With, with this in mind, one of our early evangelical covenant theologians, a guy by, with, the, with the awesome name of P.P. Waldenstrom. I'm just, you add that, people who want to have kids one day, I'm just saying that would be a great name for your, I think it would go either way, son or daughter. P.P. Waldenstrom, he says this. He said, if we're not going to come to the Bible as if it's our story but God's story, we need to have three things in mind. First, we need to read with humility and prayer. 
And we've already kind of referenced that a little bit. Second, he says we need to read to learn the truth rather than just confirm our own opinions. And thirdly, and this is what I want you to hear, we need to read ready to obey unconditionally. We need to read ready to obey unconditionally. That's asking a lot. Would you agree? If you had read the Bible lately, you would realize that is asking a lot. To read and be ready to obey unconditionally. So let me not push you too hard on this. Let's stick with the story metaphor for just a second. Think about the best stories, your favorite stories. What happens when you're reading that book, when you're watching that movie? What happens to you? For those of you who are sports fanatics, I'm convinced that like a football game, it's nothing more than a story. It's the good guys, the bad guys, there's plot twists, right? That's why we like it so much. That's why when you watch the Olympics, there's like just as much of the backstory stuff as there is about the guys doing things on the rings and in the pool, right? You know what, anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, let me take you to so-and-so's hometown and tell you about the adversity that they have faced. And all of a sudden, some dude you never heard of before in your life playing a sport that you don't care anything about. You're like, come on, please. (laughs) Stories, the best stories, they claim our lives. They suck us up into them. You read that same novel over and over again because every time you do, the clouds kind of get pushed back. The haze gets pushed away and you see something true about your life. The movies that you love the best, the ones that you come back to over and over again, these are the ones that tell you something about how the world works, something about how the world is meant to be. These stories, they call our lives, they catch up our lives, they claim our lives. So when Waldenstrom says that we read ready to obey unconditionally, perhaps, perhaps, if we begin reading this book as the story of God, we would find our lives caught up into God's story. Our lives claimed by God's story, willing to obey unconditionally. Here's the second metaphor. Worship team, come on up. Second metaphor, a meal. We, we hear the invitation to come to a story. I want you to hear an invitation today to come to a meal. I want you to, for a moment, think about this book as a meal, as a feast. And this is not a stretch. We actually find this in the Scripture. The very last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, the author is talking about a vision that he had. And in Revelation chapter 10, he says, So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. Now in this vision, the scroll represents the word of God. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it is as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my mouth, my stomach turned sour. This is actually not the only place in the Bible where we see somebody eating the Word of God. The Old Testament prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they do the same thing. They take the Word of God, they ingest it, they feast on God's Word. What's going on here? What does it mean that God's Word is a meal to us? Three things, very briefly. 
First, it means that we come to the Scriptures slowly. Slowly, patiently. The best meals are eaten slowly. The angel tells John, uh, it's going to taste good, but it's going to do something funny in your stomach. We don't know exactly what that is. But I do know that uh, the Word of God can make me a little uneasy at times. can give me indigestion at times. can throw me off kilter at times. We're not used to, some of us, feasting on the Word of God. So we eat slowly, we eat patiently. We don't walk out of here this morning thinking, oh man, I got to read this whole thing by next Sunday. I got to just, I got to, no. We eat slowly. I'm in a Bible study right now, two young men in our church. And we're going through the book of Philippians together. And about every week, two weeks, we meet up at Starbucks. And we just take 11, 12, 13 verses. And we break them down together make some observations about the text. And then we start to ask, how do, how do I change in light of this, this, this word? How is this word calling me to live differently? And over the course of an hour, two hours, we just kind of camp out in these verses. And I get up every time and I'm nourished. My spirit is full. I've feasted on something. I'm not trying to rush through it. I'm not trying to cram in my five minutes of quiet time before I go off to work so I don't feel guilty the rest of the day. (laughs) Feasting, slowly, patiently, taking the Word of God in. So we eat slowly. The second thing is that we eat to be nourished and not to conquer. Where else in the world, what other country in the world takes so much pride in how much we can eat and how fast we can eat it? That's a competitive sport in our country, right? You go to restaurants, some of you have seen this, like if you can eat this whole steak, we're going to take your picture. If you can finish this hamburger, you get to be up on our wall of shame or fame or something, I don't know. I read in the news recently, there's a, there's a place, I guess in Texas, they got the heart attack burger. Anybody read about this? Dude literally had a heart attack as he was eating the heart attack burger. He's okay. He lived. So We got this thing where we want to eat fast. We want to conquer our food. We got to get through it. We got to eat a lot of it. We eat to be nourished when we come to the Word. We don't come to master it. We don't come to conquer it. We don't come to force it into us. We come to the Word to be nourished by this meal. Here's the last thing. What does it mean that God's Word is a meal? It means that as important as it is for us to read the Scriptures personally, it's really important that we read it together. I don't know about you, but I'm convinced the best meals are the meals eaten in community. The best meals are the meals that are shared together. Some of you know this, right? Like, you wouldn't want anybody to see you eating at your house all by yourself. Because <laughs> it's not a pretty sight. <laughs> You're just like finding stuff and putting it in your mouth and running around. 
Like my wife was working last night, so I was home by myself and I was watching the Olympics. And I, I just walked back and forth to the fridge. That's, that was what I did. I just, I ate something and then I went back to the fridge and I ate something else. And then there was this big leftover thing of chocolate mousse from her work. I just brought the whole thing out in the spoon. I just, that's not a good way to eat. It's not pretty. I wouldn't have wanted anybody, if you, any of you to be in the room with me while I was eating. We eat better when we eat in community. We eat slower. We eat more patiently. We pay more attention to the food that we're putting into our mouths. When you have somebody over, you take time thinking about the food that you want to prepare for them, to give to them. This is what happens when we read the scriptures, the Bible, in community. We hear better. Things that we would have missed otherwise all of a sudden stand out to us because all of a sudden Carlton's telling me something about what he sees in this verse that I would have missed otherwise. Or Dana's sharing some testimony in her life about how God had been at work and all of a sudden my own life is opened up to something in God's word that I needed to hear. We eat better, we read better in community. So are you? Is there a place in your life where you're opening up this book with other people? Where you're feasting together on the Word of God? Yeah, read it by yourself, absolutely. But is there a place? Is there a Bible study? Is there a community group? Is there a place where you are opening up this Word and feasting on it slowly for nourishment in community? These are the invitations I want to leave you with this morning. Again, whether or not you're a Christian, I'd ask you to consider this book, the revealed word of God for you, as a story for you to enter into, as a meal for you to sit down and to feast on. The great news for us this morning is that God wants you to know him. The great news for us this morning is that a God who is totally other, totally transcendent, totally distinct, totally different than us, wants to be known by you. And this God has made a way for us to regularly hear him, see him, be shaped by him. The great news for us this morning is that you and I don't worship a God who's a long ways away, but a God who has come near. A God who wants to change our lives, shape our lives. The great news is that you are not on your own trying to figure out how to live this life, how to do this life. So enter into the story this week. I'm convinced it is the only story that will make deep and true meaning of your life and of this world. Sit down to a nourishing meal this week. Sit down with friends, with community members. Open up these pages. You will find words that satisfy. Amen? Let's pray. And so we thank you for your word. thank you that there is a way of knowing that does not stop and end with us. What trouble we would be in if it were up to us to know an unknowable God. If it were up to us to figure out a transcendent God. If it were up to us to enter into a relationship with a perfect, holy, just, righteous, loving God. What trouble we would be in. So we thank you for a way of knowing and being 
known that begins and ends with you, our Father. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray that we would come to treasure your word, not as an act of duty or obligation, but as a gift that you have given your people. Allow us to be shaped, formed, encouraged, and sent by what it is you have to say to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. For you to all stand. Pastor David, thank you for uh, just that reminder um, that in this story, it's also um, the greatest love story um, because of who Jesus is and what he did for us and and how he loves us. So uh, we want to sing this song uh, in response to him.
loves us.